Wasn't that pretty cool, man? Let's give all of those. Yeah, the hand, we're grateful. Before we get into the message, you know, um, a lot of people may not know, honestly, I didn't know this for the longest time, that Memorial Day is not a day where, I mean, it's, it's fitting and appropriate that we always celebrate our veterans or those that are currently serving their family. I mean, I never want to imply that there's a day that's not okay to do that. It's always fitting. But Memorial Day is exclusively, specifically for those that gave their lives, uh, to, you know, defending our nation, um, you know, in, in war. And so um, I, I looked up the history of it. And it says originally called Decoration Day from the early uh, tradition of decorating graves with flowers, wreaths, and flags. Memorial Day is a day for remembrance of those who have died in service to our country. It was first widely observed on May 30th, 1868 to commemorate the sacrifices of Civil War soldiers by proclamation of General John A. Logan of the Grand Army of the Republic, an organization of former Union sailors and soldiers. During that first national commemoration, former Union general and sitting Ohio Congressman James Garfield made a speech at Arlington National Cemetery, after which 5,000 participants helped to decorate the graves of more than 20,000 Union and Confederate soldiers who were buried there. This national event galvanized efforts to honor and remember fallen soldiers that began with local observances at burial grounds in several towns throughout the United States following the end of the Civil War. Such as the May 1st, 1865 gathering in Charleston, South Carolina, organized by freed slaves to pay tribute and give proper burial to Union troops. In 1873, New York was the first state to designate Memorial Day as a legal holiday. By the late 1800s, many more cities and communities observed Memorial Day, and several states had declared it a legal holiday. After World War I, it became an occasion for honoring those who died in all of America's wars and was then more widely established as a national holiday throughout the United States. At that event in 1868, James Garfield, who spoke, said this, We do not know one promise these men made, one pledge they gave, one word they spoke. But we do know they summed up and perfected by one supreme act, the highest virtues of men and citizens. For love of country, they accepted death and thus resolved all doubts and made immortal their patriotism and their virtue. I think they deserve our honor, don't you? Let's give them a hand. We're grateful, you know, the, uh, we live in a culture that it's just kind of become cool and chic to, to uh, you know, to not value anything. I mean, there's not anything sacred, there's not anything that's important. You know, one of the challenges is every, anytime that a human being is attached to it, there's going to be a flaw or an imperfection in it. You know, I mean, this place is no exception. I know the guy that pastors, and he's a mess sometimes, all right? And so, yeah, thank you. So, um, um but the truth of the matter is, is that it doesn't mean that the, that the idea and the memory and the thought and the sacrifice aren't sacred. And so I think it's just fitting and appropriate. The Bible says to give honor to those whom honor is due. And it's, you're never going to give honor to a perfect individual. But they can have perfect ideas. They can be a perfect moment, a perfect desire, a perfect opportunity, you know, in spite of their brokenness, in spite of their flaws, in spite of their imperfections. And so we're going to be that place that continues to honor those that deserve to be honored. And so let's give them one more hand and just say thank you. Well, you know, we, uh, we started a series, you know, last week called Mistreated. Are you ready to get started? Well, that was like a, you know, a tenth of you. Are you ready to get started, everybody else? Yeah. Well, grab hold of your Bible and say this with me. Say, this is my Bible. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. I declare this morning 
My mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I'll be taught the Word of God. And I'll never be the same again. Open up your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Kings 19. If you're still learning your way around the Bible, know this, that there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. The Old Testament begins with Genesis. 1 Kings is in the New Testament. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 Kings. It's right before 2 Kings, if that's helpful to you. Anyway, I know. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, so anyway, 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to talk about a guy named Elijah. And in 1 Kings 18, Elijah had had this huge challenge where he was getting ready to face um, the prophets of Baal. They were, uh, you know, they, were, uh, they were worshipers of false gods. And so he was a man of God, and he was put in a position to challenge them, to challenge these priests of Baal. Now, Israel reminded me a little bit of where we are as a nation, and that is this, that at that time, Israel... They really weren't committed to anything. As a matter of fact, during this big showdown, they all showed up. A bunch of people showed up, and they looked at this. And I remember that he said to them, he said, look, man, he said, if God's God, then serve him. And if Baal's God, then serve him. But don't be halting between two opinions. Don't, don't be undivided in what you do. And it says this, that they didn't respond at all. They were just kind of like indifferent. And indifference is, it is not anybody's friend. I mean, you know, commitment brings clarity in our life. And so he had this huge situation take place. God used him mightily. And I think a lot of times when we read about individuals like this, we think that, that they're kind of superhuman, that they're above us, that they don't, you know, they didn't have any flaws, they didn't make any mistakes. But we're going to look right here and see that, you know, just like me and just like you, that these people, they had their challenges and their stuff too. So he has this great battle. And, uh, and so it, he's uh, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel uh, find out about what had taken place, and they were mad at Elijah. And so we're going to pick up uh, from that uh, standpoint right there, 1 Kings 19, verse 1. And it says this, When Ahab, that was the king, when he got home and told Jezebel, his wife, everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal, so Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the God strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Now, you would think with what had taken place the day before that he would have said, well, you tell her in this letter that, you know, I'll dispose of her. I mean, that there'd have been just a lot of trash talking going on, but that wasn't what took place, man. I mean, it impacted him. We'll see here in just a minute that he became afraid. It was one of those things that struck fear into his heart. It was just one of those things. That, and I just discovered this that so many times, one of the things that the devil uses against us, one of his chief tools or weapons is intimidation bullying. Now he uses people to do that. And, and probably most of us in here at some point in our life or at some season has experienced bull, you know, being bullied by, by people, being intimidated, being pushed around, you know. And the, the, the thing about it is, is that that fear can make us feel powerless. It can make us feel just insignificant. It, it can have all of those things honest but but I think one of the places that we have to start is that even though it may be a person that's doing that to you that at its root it's spiritual at its root that the devil is behind it that one of his chief things that he uses is fear and intimidation bullying is just a form of fear if you're taking notes there uh, it just says this fear is a key weapon of the enemy 
I mean, you know, she wrote him a letter and sent that to him. It, it would be no different than if you were sitting here and you got a text from somebody that said, hey, you better watch yourself. Or maybe it's your job. You'll go there, you know, today or tomorrow, sometime this week, and you're dealing with a coworker that's in a really broken place in their life, and they're taking it out on you. Or maybe you have a boss that's just on you all the time. Or maybe you're going through something and it's incredibly unfair and it's just pushing against your life and pushing against your life and it can feel so overwhelming. And just understand this, that anytime that fear or intimidation shows up like that, that even though it may be manifested through an individual, that behind the scenes, in its foundation, that it's one of the things that the devil uses to get us off focus, to get us off track. To get us away from the plan of God and from his purpose. To cause us to shrink back and not stand in faith of what God has called us to do or who he's made us to be. And so to understand this, so number one, if you're taking notes, is this, is that fear is a key, key weapon of the enemy. Let's keep reading there. And it says in the next verse, it says, Elijah was afraid. Everybody say afraid. Now, again, keep this in context. Just the day before, this guy stood by himself and confronted the enemies of God. Stood by himself in faith, brave and bold. And if we would have seen him that day and the way that he responded the next day, it was like, dude, what happened to you? Isn't it amazing sometimes that we can have some of our most key victories some of the great things that God uses in, and right after that, have that moment of just seeming like overwhelming or feeling like a failure, or how the enemy comes and attacks us and gets after us in that. And so it says this, that Elijah, after he read that, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah. Now, that was a place that he kind of made, you know, was one of the originations of his commitment to God. So he went back to that place. And it says, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone. Everybody say alone. alone. He went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. So I think it's interesting that he has this moment. He has this experience, this encounter. And what's one of the very first things he does as he begins to leave? He begins to isolate himself and separate himself. I've noticed this in my own life and a lot of people's lives, and maybe this is you too, that a lot of times when I'm going through a really hard place, my natural inclination is to pull back, to just separate myself. You know, um, <laughs> my wife is here, man, and I love her dearly, and you, you know, she has probably a big mansion waiting in heaven. Like she'll go, I'm Tina Burke, I lived with Rick Burke. He goes, oh yeah, we, we've got this place for you. So I mean, it's gonna be one of those things. But I, I told her a while back, I was, just, I was feeling just a challenge in a certain area, and, you know, and I'm like most men, you know, she, and, and, and she's like a lot of women. And so she can tell when something's wrong. She says, hey, are you okay? Well, I'm, I'm fine. Well, she's not buying that because she knows, you know. And so finally I, I said, well, this is kind of what's going on in my life, but, but I really don't want to talk about it. And in her mind, I don't want to talk about it is code for I want to talk about it. <laughs> and so, you know, she starts asking me questions. I'm like, but I, I just said I, d I don't want to talk about it. Oh, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, but, but so then the, what you need to do is, I'm, I'm like, I, I don't want to talk about it, you know? But the truth of the matter is, is often we need people in our life that are there so that when we're ready to talk about it, we can. The, the problem is, is when we feel that overwhelming, we begin to isolate ourselves and pull back. And I, I've said this over and over again, and I'll say it again and again unapologetically, and that is this, that you and I were never created to do this alone. 
We were never created to do this alone. Adam was sinless and in the garden, and he had this relationship with God that was not impeded or hindered uh, by anything. And God still looked at him and said, he's alone and it's not good. And I don't think that's just in reference to marriage, but it's just we weren't created to do this alone. And Elijah, when he was in a hard place, one of the very first things that he did was that he, he separated himself from this guy that had been traveling with him, that had worked with him, that had been a part of what he was doing, and he went alone. And it was one of the biggest mistakes he could have made. Because when we isolate ourselves and get by ourselves, then all of a sudden the thoughts of the enemy, the voice of fear becomes incredibly loud. The voice of feeling inadequate or insuperior or just whatever that is, just that, that thing that just caused you to shrink back, it becomes incredibly loud. And all of us should have people in our life that have been through the fire with us. And in those seasons, don't exclude them from your circle. Don't exclude them from your life. It may be times you have to look at them and go, I just need you here. I don't want to talk about it right now, but just your presence here will keep me sane and keep me on the right path and keep me from doing something really dumb. I mean, Elijah, this man of God, was so impacted by it that he's contemplating suicide. He's asking God to take his life. And if we think we're exempt from having those kind of thoughts, we look at this guy and it's obvious that none of us are if we violate the things that God has created us to have in our world. And whenever you're in a hard place, have people around you that have been through it with you. Don't exclude them. Don't stop answering their texts. Don't quit taking their phone calls. Embrace those relationships. And if you're that somebody for that person right now, Understand how sacred that is. Understand how valuable that is that they don't share this with anybody, but they trust you so much that they'll share it with you. It's an incredibly sacred thing when somebody reveals their broken places. It's an incredibly sacred thing when somebody reveals the places that they're vulnerable in or they feel exposed in. And for them to trust you with it means you have to treat it as sacred. And it's not yours to share. It's yours to lean in with them and support them and be with them because they need you in this moment. But Elijah, one of the worst things he could do was he, he left this person that had been with him and he went off alone by himself. And I know in here today, man, there's some of you that you're in this place. That you're dealing with a situation an organization or an individual that you feel like is just pushing you around, bullying you, you feel helpless, you feel like you don't know what to do, and, and, and it can make you feel powerless, which can be, you know, it can just have this, this really horrible effect on us. And so as a result, you've isolated yourself from that situation. You've isolated yourself from the people in your life that care about you. You know, I've shared with you my story about when I was in my early 20s that I went through depression for several years. And how horrible it was. And I will just say one of the very first things that I did when I started going through it was I don't want anything to do with anybody. I would go in my room and I, I, would, I would like shut the blinds. I would turn the TV off and I would shut the door. And I, I didn't want anybody around me. But God in his goodness, he would put me in class. I was going to Bible school at the time for crying out loud. And he put people around me that finally one day, man, I was just, I was so overwhelmed by what I was going through. I had to talk to somebody and I opened up to this guy next to me and lo and behold, he'd been through the same thing that God in his goodness had strategically placed somebody beside me that I didn't even know at the time had come out on the other side of what I was going through. And I can remember one day that after class, I'm, I'm sitting in the car and I finally found somebody that I can trust 
and I'm just, I'm just going all over it again, just talking about how hopeless I feel and, and just how desperate I feel about my future and how broken my future seems and how there seems to be no hope. And I remember just watching people as they're coming out of class. I remember this girl comes out and she's talking with somebody and she's smiling. I said, I would just like to be like that. I'd like to, I'd like to be able to smile like she is. And he said, look, man, he said, you're making a mistake. If you think you can tell what's going on in another individual's life just by the look on their face in a moment. He said, most of us are fighting secret battles. He said, don't think for a minute that just because she's smiling that her life is perfect. And man, I needed to hear that there was something about that that let me know that I'm not in this alone. Our first thought is, is that nobody else is suffering like I am. Nobody else is going through this like me. We almost take on kind of a martyr syndrome. God, I'm the only one. I'm the only one that's serving you. I'm the only one. And yet, instead, we have to understand that, that there are other people going through stuff. But none of us were called or intended to do this by ourselves. I think it's interesting that Jesus, even Jesus and the followers that he had around him, that at one point he called 70 of them together. And I might have thought, I'm going to send each one of these individuals to a city. That will reach 70 cities. But you know what he did? He sent them out in twos. Because he knew there'd be one day that they, they would need to, one of them would need to lean on the other. And there'd be another day that the other one needs to lean on the other. You're not called to do this alone. If you're in a hard place, if you're dealing with desperation, if you're being bullied, if, if you're being intimidated, if just fear is on you about your future, don't separate yourself. Don't isolate yourself. Don't pull yourself back. Engage in the people around you that love you, that want to be a part of your story and a part of your world. Number two is this, if you're taking notes, keep your crew close. Keep them close to you. Let's continue reading. We'll close with this. He said this, talking about Elijah, then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. And he looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Then he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Well, that wasn't true. He wasn't the only one left. But again, because he was by himself, by his choice, by his decision, he'd bought into the lie that you've got to do this alone. And that's what happens, man. That martyr syndrome takes us on because he'd isolated himself. But this is what the Lord said to him. It says, he said, that, uh, he said, go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus, 
When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. I think it's so interesting that Elijah has this experience. He's in this cave, and all of a sudden, he hears this wind that blows, and it's such a fierce wind that it breaks rocks to pieces. And yet he didn't hear God's voice or direction in that. And then there was an earthquake, and it just rattled everything, and yet God's voice or direction wasn't that. And then there was a fire that was just, you know, eye-catching, and God's voice wasn't in that. And it wasn't until this still, small voice, this gentle whisper. You know, one of the challenges when we get in a hard place is that so many times I know in my own life, man, I'm looking for some kind of spectacular direction. We want to see a vision or have an, have an angel appear to us or, you know, just this dream all of a sudden where Jesus shows up and that kind of thing. And I'm not saying that never happens. I'm not saying that God can't do that. I believe he has done that for people in certain situations. It's never happened to me, but I believe he's done it for other people. But I'll tell you what, often, man, that it's not in one of those spectacular things. It is in that still, small voice because we understand this. In order to hear somebody whisper, you can't hear that from a distance. You have to press in close. A whisper is intimate. You can't stay separated and hear that. It requires us to lean in. And I've discovered often, like in that certain situation I told you about, the direction in my life didn't come from a dream or whatever. It came by God supernaturally planting somebody in a seat next to me in a classroom that I did not even know had been through the same thing that I'd been through. And they were going to be able to use their story to help me. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, verse 3, that God comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others the same way that he's comforted us. And so sometimes he speaks to us through conversations of people that he's trusted them to speak into our world. They give us godly counsel. Sometimes we encounter circumstances and situations that he shows us the way. Other times we read scripture. Sometimes, you know, and a verse stands out to us. It pops out to us like, oh man, I've never noticed that before. Sometimes it's in a message or in a worship song, something like that. That's just kind of a common everyday occurrence, but because God's hand is on it, because it's leading, it's no longer common, it's uncommon. It's no longer natural, it's supernatural. And so it's in those things that they're not spectacular, but they're still supernatural that God's voice begins to stand out in our world. He didn't speak to him in the hurricane, he didn't speak to him in the wind, he didn't speak to him in the fire. He spoke to him in the gentle whisper. What are you doing here? And then Elijah gave his same answer. Nobody's left but me. Again, he bought into the lie that he was in this alone. He bought into the lie that he was called to do this alone, that he couldn't count on anybody. It caused him to contemplate taking his life or to have God take it. And you know what God did? God began to talk to him about his future. Because see, the reason why fear is so powerful is because we begin to hear it and we begin to think that it's identifying and telling us what our future is going to look like. But when he began to listen to the voice of God again, God began to speak to him and began to reveal to him, they don't declare your future. If you'll listen to me, I will. And he said, you go and you anoint this guy and you have this guy, you prepare him to take your place. And as he began to hear the voice of God, all of a sudden his future began to be clear again. The power of intimidation, the power of somebody that the, the devil uses to bully you and their life is that all of a sudden if we begin to listen to them, we begin to think that our future is hopeless, that it's fruitless, 
that it's insignificant, that there's nothing to it, that there's not any value in us whatsoever. When we begin to hear the voice of God, all of a sudden we remember what Ephesians 2.10 says, and it says this, that you are his masterpiece. You were created to do good works by him. Yeah, but so-and-so said, they didn't create you. They didn't make you. And as long as your life is in his hands, they don't dictate or control your future. As long as your hands, as long as your life is in the hands of Jesus, you'll not leave this earth a second sooner than you're supposed to. It won't be until you're ready to finish, until your race is over and you cross the finish line. And those around you will take comfort in that. My Uncle Jim passed, and you know, it's been, uh, there's been a grieving because I miss him. But I've had a great confidence that his race was done. I knew part of the reason why he was here was to be an encouragement to me, to help me. There were seasons when we first started the church that I knew that at times that, that if I was going through a hard place, that I had that individual, like I told you guys before, that he was that person in my life, that in his mind, I was bigger than I am in reality. He'd begin to brag on me. I'm like, that's, that's really not me. I'm not, I'm not that good. Huh? And so he'd begin to say that. But we all need that person. But sometimes, man, we, we let this situation or these circumstances or that thing begin to tell us that, you know, that our life doesn't amount to anything, that we don't have much time to live, or this is going to be over, or that's going to be over. Again, you commit your future into the hands of God. Not into the voice of fear. Not into the, not into the weakness or brokenness of another individual who the only way they know how to deal with their situation is to try to push somebody else around because they feel so insignificant in their own world that the only way they can get a false sense of significance is by bullying you. You embrace God's plan. You listen to God's voice and not theirs and see that hope for your future comes back alive. That when you begin to see your future, it's no longer through the eyes of fear. It's no longer through the eyes of I'm not worth anything. But you realize the realization of who you are and who Jesus made you to be and what he's done for you begins to resonate in your heart and begins to give you hope. And all of a sudden, your future is not something to shrink back from. The relationships in your life are not anything to hide from, but they're something to embrace and say, let's do this together and carry out God's plan and see where it takes us. Our lives are his, not theirs. And as we embrace that, it's amazing how the voice of fear begins to shrink. Fear has a voice. And we separate ourselves from people in our life and we begin to separate ourselves from God's plan all of a sudden, the voice in it begins to be loud. It begins to point to our failures in our past. It begins to point to our insecurities. It begins to point to what others have said about us. But whenever we embrace the things of God, and we begin to lean in in that intimate place where we can even hear his whisper, that he begins to remind us that he has more for us to do. I'll say it again and again. If you're not dead, God's not done. He has a plan for you and a purpose. And you let him define your future. With that, go and clap. So number three is this. Let God's voice define your future. Let his voice. Not the voice of a bully. Not the voice of an intimidator. Not the voice of somebody in their own insecurities that they fall into the trap of the enemy. That the only way to have significance is to push somebody else around. They haven't realized yet either that their purpose was not defined in their ability to do that. Their purpose was defined in what Jesus has already done for them and what he's done for us. Let God's voice define your future. I want us to do this for just a minute. I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes. And I want us just to spend a moment with God. Just let him speak to you. And especially any of you right now that you're in that season where you feel bullied, where you feel pushed around or intimidated to just... 
right now, you just lean back into God's voice. Lean in and, and listen for that whisper. That intimate conversation that God wants to have with you. While you're doing that, I know that we have some people that have signed up to be baptized. And if that's you, you can begin, go ahead and get up and make your way back to the back and begin to get ready for that. But the rest of us, let's just stay reverent right now and just spend a moment with God. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we're grateful that you're a good Father. Father, I pray for anyone in here today that, man, they're dealing with this. Maybe at work, maybe at home, maybe in a social setting, maybe just in the encounter, maybe an online presence, or whatever's going on, that there's just this situation where they just feel bullied and just intimidated and pushed around. I pray that they would embrace your promises. They would embrace your presence. And they would embrace your purpose. That the purpose of God, the plan of God, would be the thing that defines their future. Jesus, just help in that situation. With heads bowed and eyes closed, uh, before we go today, man, if... If you're here today and you've never received Jesus as your Savior, you've never made Him Lord of your life, if you want to do that today, I want to pray for you. You know, being a Christian is more than just believing in God, but it's this awareness that all of us have blown it, all of us have sinned. And Jesus, He took our sins upon the cross, and when we recognize that and receive Him, make Jesus the Lord of our life, then we become children of God, we're forgiven, you become a new creature in Christ. So if you've never received him as your Savior, never made Jesus Lord of your life, if you want to do that today, I, I want to pray for you. Second of all, if you're here and you say, you know, Rick, I've done that, but honestly, man, I've gotten off track. I'm not where I used to be. I'm not where I want to be or where I need to be. Can I get back to that place? Absolutely, you can. You say, well, how do you know? Because I've been you, man. I've gotten off track before, too. I know what that's like. And I can tell you from experience, he'll restore you. He'll restore you. So if you want to recommit your life, rededicate it today, I'd love to pray for you. Then lastly, if you're here and you say, you know, sometimes I think I'm saved. I think I'm a Christian, but other times I struggle with what if I'm not? And I wish I could just have a certainty. I wish I could leave here knowing that I'm his. Well, I want that for you too. So if that's you, I, I want to pray for you. That you'd leave here with a confidence knowing that you are his. So for any one of those three things, whether to give your life to Jesus for the very first time, 
or to recommit your life to him or just to leave here with an assurance. If that's you on any one of those things, I, I want to pray for you with heads bowed and eyes closed just so I know who I'm praying for. Just so I'm praying for, if, if that's you, would you just raise your hand and hold it up there for just a minute? Just hold it up real high for us for just a minute if you would. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Who else? Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else want to join these? Yeah, thank you. Anybody else? Several already. Anybody else? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I see that. Anybody else? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? All right, I want to pray for you. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus, and I, I pray for each person that raised their hand. And Lord, they matter. You love them. And I ask you, Father, that if this is their first time, that they would become a new creature in Christ. That old things would pass away and all things would become new. And Father, if they're rededicating their lives, recommitting their lives, that you would restore them. That they would leave here with the joy of their salvation being restored. And Lord, that both of them would be leaving, they'd leave forgiven, free of guilt, free of condemnation, no shame. And lastly, Father, for anyone that's struggling with them, I really saved. I pray that when they leave here today, that they would know they're yours, not because they feel like it, because some days I don't feel like it. And they would know they're yours, not because they always act like it either, because you know I don't always act like it. But they would know they're yours because you said, whoever calls on Jesus will be saved. So in the days we don't feel like it and the days we don't act like it, we know we're yours because our confidence is not in how good we feel. And it's certainly not in how good we are. It's in what Jesus has done for us. And what you've promised, and that's enough. And so we receive that now in Jesus' name. Now look, man, I prayed for you, and that's good. But as we say around here all the time, Jesus didn't come because humanity needed another religion. He came so that we could have a relationship with him and the Father. And so in a relationship, you and he talk. So if you raise your hand, I want to lead you in a prayer. Well, you're not praying to me, you're praying to him. And, and you're engaging in a conversation with him. And so... I want you to be able to do that boldly and not hindered or intimidated. And like I said earlier, you're not in this alone. We're in this together. So I'm going to ask everybody in here to repeat after me, to affirm our faith, but to also encourage those of you that are praying this today that just raise your hand. So again, you're praying this. You're praying it to God. Let's, let's all say this. Say, dear God, thank you for Jesus. Jesus, be Lord of my life. I surrender my will. To your will. I receive you as my Savior now. Thank you for dying on the cross for all my sins. And I believe with all my heart that you were raised from the dead so I could be forgiven. I call upon you now and ask you to forgive me and to live in me. And I thank you for forgiving me and saving me and loving me. I'm yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give them a hand. Isn't that awesome?